The following program is recorded content created by the Truth Network. Phone lines are wide open. You've got questions. We've got answers. It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, biblical scholar and cultural commentator, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice for moral sanity and spiritual clarity. Call 866-34-TRUTH to get on The Line of Fire. And now, here's your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Well, here we go. You've got questions. We've got answers. Any question of any kind that relates in any way to any ministry work we do, anything that we talk about on the air, anything having to do with Bible theology, spirituality, culture, moral, political issues, Israel, whatever. Or if you disagree with me, want to challenge me on something, phone lines are open, 866-348-7884. Michael Brown, absolutely delighted to be with you. And we are going straight to the phones. Sam in Columbus, Mississippi, you're first up today. Thanks for calling. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Brown, for taking calls. Uh, I appreciate you so much. Um, my question, and I'll, I'll tell you a little bit what leads up to this question. Uh, I did some studying sometime back on the Calvinist doctrine. I pastored a small church. I was never very interested in it. I would always just throw it out because of foreknowledge, you know, I understood that. And uh, the, the deeper I got into it, the more I realized I, I needed a little help. So I wound up being turned to you, listening to debates, and it was just absolutely wonderful. I said, you truly are uh, our voice. And uh, so I I just prayed, and I said, Lord, show me something specific, you know, for me. I mean, besides, of course, we have the doctrinal issues or the scriptural issues. But uh, in Matthew 25, uh, <clears throat> I felt like the Lord just led me here one morning. When you see the sowing and reaping, the man who received the one talent, Mm-hmm. Remember, he, he accused the master of being a hard man. Right, because right. Because he, 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 you sow, you know, you're reaping what you don't sow. And, of course, the master said, well, you knew all this. You're wicked, you know, for, for what all you've done. And to me, the master was very upset of being called a hard man. Well, in this, uh, in, in, in the doctrine of election, there appears to be no sowing and reaping. Even in, 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 our, in our honor of exchange, when we get saved, we're exchanging our life for Christ's life, you know? And this law seems to be throughout scriptures of sowing and reaping. And my question is, do you see this? Do you see that that, that doctrine eliminates the sowing and reaping? Yes, it's, it's certainly a fair question, and I appreciate you wrestling through the, the biblical issues, and thanks for the kind words. So, of course, with any parable— It's meant to convey overall points and messages. And even though there may be equivalences that this stands for this and this stands for this, obviously we don't want to go too far in deducing things from parables. But the question would be, does Calvinism paint a picture of God that makes him unfair or unjust or cruel in some way? And although there are Calvinistic friends of mine and Calvinistic leaders through history, that extol the grace of God and the beauty of God and say that Calvinism displays God's love because none of us deserve to be saved and God chose to save some of us. That, of course, is true. But if Calvinism is true, God simply chose to pass by multitudes of other people for reasons unknown to us, but having nothing to do with the quality of our lives or lack thereof. And that by creation, the way he made us, that ultimately we're only doing what we were created to do. 
In, in other words, someone who was created by God with the ultimate purpose of being a wicked person who will be damned to hell as a testament to God's justice only did what they could do. They could never not be wicked. And according to Calvinism, they did not have the power to believe that Jesus died for them. And even if they did believe it, it wasn't true because he didn't die for them. Uh, so yes. that would be like uh, blaming someone who was handicapped, uh, was in a car wreck and their, sign was, uh, their spine was severed, and it's impossible for them to walk, for me to blame them for not walking or hold them responsible. That's how many would see it. So I know my Calvinist friends would have a response to that. But yes, the, the logic behind it is not consistent with the larger picture I see painted of God in the scriptures. So thank you, sir, for the question. Yes, sir. Thank you. Appreciate it. And, and you know, <clears throat> when you referenced being a pastor of a small church, uh, there's so many large churches today, and I have the privilege of working with some of them and, and ministering in some of them, and they're thriving and healthy and great, but thank God for those who've labored for years, sometimes in small communities, sometimes with the ups and downs and challenges of life and ministry. I used to tell our students in the midst of revival in the Brownsboro Revival School of Ministry that a, a pastor may have asked for a team to come out, and you may go out, and there may, there may be 30 people in this church, and you might think, wow, he's been here 20 years, only 30 people. I said, that man was the one that got the call in the middle of the night when the parents found out their 14-year-old committed suicide. That man had to go from the bedside of, of a loved one in the congregation dying of cancer to then go and preach behind a pulpit. So honor, honor him. Hey, thank you, sir, for the call. 866-348-7884. Let's go to Trevor in California. You are on the line of fire. Hey, Dr. Brown, I love your ministry, man. And uh, in response to the last caller, you actually were instrumental in your debate with James White and, and helped me to not go down the Calvinistic route. So I appreciate that. All right. Um, great. Thank I, you. All right, hang, hang on. I know you. Hang on one second. James, if you're listening, don't fall off the bike. I'm sure you get your stories on the other side. But, hey, good news, Trevor. Thanks. Okay. Just have a little fun with James yeah. White there. Back to you, yeah, though, yeah, please. Yeah. yeah. And uh, Dr. White, if you're listening, I still love your ministry. No there we go. Um, there but, we go. Yeah, so... I know you have a book with John Kilpatrick called Seven Keys to Sustaining Personal Revival, or maybe it's 11, but I was wondering if you could give me some of those keys. You know, I've, I've had a great season of personal revival, and then sort of the energy that comes off the first part is wearing off, but the, the commitment is still there. So, yeah, now that I'm in this kind of le less, like, feelings of zeal, but still, still lots of godly things happening, how do I sustain this? Yeah, so the, the title of the book that was written together with John Kilpatrick and Larry Sparks is The Fire That Never Sleeps. And it doesn't list X number of keys, but it's keys for sustaining personal revival. So uh, on the one hand, revival is a season of unusual divine visitation. And we know that God uses it to wake up a sleeping church, to bring about a great harvest of lost sinners, uh, to bring about fundamental changes in the body. But that revival in itself is something exceptional. The key is that we continue to walk in passion, devotion, consistency, truth, right? And that's, that's really what you're, you're talking about. And that's part of the reason for the book. So this is a great challenge. There's no magic formula, but there are certain principles that we live by. First, 
is we've got to always remain jealous for our times alone with the Lord. It's it's just it's. Uh, by the way, you can hear me, but we can't hear you. There's just some background noise. So if you're interacting, I'll I'll, I'll get back to you after I share. The first and most fundamental thing for for any believer is jealousy of the quality and consistency of your times alone with God. We will wander. We will leave our first love. We will lose our edge. We will decline in devotion. We will compromise our standards. All these things will happen if we do not spend adequate time consistently with the Lord. Schedules can vary, but we still have to be jealous for that. One thing that's helped me is periodic, intensive times alone with the Lord. Because of the busyness of life, and I'll just get so consumed writing and doing ministry work, and sometimes busy traveling, that, that I will neglect the, the depth of focused time alone with the Lord. So more often than I ever have in my life, I just get alone. I cut back on ministry travel schedule to spend, it's probably averaging to every five weeks, just getting alone the entire weekend to be with the Lord, uninterrupted, just being with him. That's been life-changing. So that's number one. Number two is to keep reading, listening to, taking things in that stir fire, that stir hunger. Because staying hungry is really important. There are more lost people to be touched. There are more sick people to be healed. There's more to be done to raise up a standard for the name of Jesus. So whether it's reading other things that challenge you, it could be missionary biographies. It could be testimonies of healing. It could be stories of past revival. Uh, it, it could be certain worship songs that take you to a certain place and remind you of the beauty of the Lord. So do things to stir yourself on a regular basis. A third thing would be give away what you have. Go out and do outreach. If you feel miserable and you have nothing, go out anyway. I found that as we live by the principle of give rather than hoard, talking spiritually, that God renews. Lord, I've only got $20 in my pocket. I'll give you a, a monetary analogy. Give, right? Help that poor person. And next thing, someone writes you a $200 check that helps you on, go on your missions trip. It's the same kind of thing that often happens spiritually. So those are some of the things. And then journal, journal. If you feel the Lord speaking to you about something, write it down. If, if you're having an incredible encounter with God, write it down. Then go back and review your journal notes because that may stir you. That may remind you. So these are some of the things that I believe will be healthy. The emotions are going to go up and down, but you can live in a state of revived devotion and love. So hopefully some of those things will be helpful to you, Trevor. So that's the ones that come to mind as the most essential and foundational. All right. Yeah, thanks so much. I am um, particularly interested in what you said that revival helps, you know, change cultures in the body. I was wondering, does that type of thing often happen starting just with one or two people who are kind of interested in seeing that change in a body? Well, generally speaking, unless you are leading the congregation or leading a denomination or movement or something like that, uh, you don't have the ability to bring about that change. But it could be that your hunger, your prayer, your crying out to God helps spark something. Maybe you pray regularly for, for your, your pastor leaders for a year 
Just pray the, the fullness of God's blessing on them and the freshness of God's fire in them and, and deeper devotion. And maybe they encounter God in a new way or are revived and brought back to first love. And maybe they begin to look at church and ministry and say, what are we doing? These are just dead traditions, so we're just repeating what others have done. And, and maybe that can then bring some type of reformation and change. But often, the spark starts with just a few people. But it's going to have to spread and then spread to those who have the power to bring about change or to birth something new if there is to be a change in culture. And sometimes unlikely people end up birthing something new that they never planned to. But as they call for reformation and change, they launch into something entirely new. Hey, thank you for the call. Uh, we've got a line or two open if you want to call in now. 866-348-7884. Adam, Sims, Michael, coming your way next. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get on the Line of Fire by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thank you so much for joining us on the Line of Fire. Are you getting my emails? You say, Dr. Brown, you ask that every day. Yeah, because plenty of people tune in for the first time and others takes a few reminders. So be sure to go to my website, askdrbrown.org, askdrbrown.org. Just click there right on the homepage to get the emails. Take you a few seconds to sign up. We want to get you in our welcome tour. Tell you more about my own testimony from LSD to PhD. Tell you about the, the three R's that form the foundation of our ministry and all the ways that we can serve you, help you, keep you up to date as we are here, friends, to see the church, to see each of you healthy, thriving, infused with faith and truth and courage. So right where you are, on the front lines of your world, on the front lines of life, where you are, be it changing diapers, be it programming computers, be it preaching on the street corner, wherever you are on the front lines, we want to stand with you and help pour into you. So go to the website, sdrbrown.org, and let us start pouring into you today. All right, we go to Montreal, Canada. Adam, welcome to the Line of Fire. Hey, Dr. Brown, how are you doing today? Doing very well, thank you. Awesome, awesome. Yeah, so I just have a couple questions for you. Uh, the first one is uh, regarding Genesis chapter 14, where uh, the king of Sodom offers Abraham wealth, you know, after the whole scenario happened with um, delivering Lot and all that. Yep. And um, I just want to know, how does that, like, you know, when Abraham rejected uh, the king's gift, um, how does that apply practically today? Because, for example, let's say somebody's in business, right? And, uh, you know, you're working primarily with unbelievers. Right. Um, so how does the whole concept work of, you know, rejecting, you know, the king of Sodom's wealth like today? Right. So we know that God has the children of Israel plunder, plunder Egypt, Right. And, of course, they worked as slaves, so this was a way of getting wages, but took the wealth of the wicked and gave it to God's people. Israel was told to ask for the, from every neighbor, and it was given to them, and those phys excuse me, physical riches were used, among other things, to help build a tabernacle. And we know that there are verses about the wealth of the wicked being stored up for the righteous 
in the book of Proverbs, right? Uh, so yep. that in itself is not a problem. But Abraham's ethic was to say, I didn't do this for money. I didn't do this for any, any person. And no one is going to be able to say, hey, I made Abram rich. It, it's only God that's going to be able to say that. So that was his personal ethic before God. You can live that out in many, many different ways. For example, when Paul said that even though he was entitled to financial support for his ministry work, that he was not going to uh, be deprived of his boasting that he did it for free. He said, God commanded me to preach, so I can't boast about that. But if I don't receive income for it and work extra to support myself, that's my boast. So there may be something that you do. And let's, let's just say, and again, just a practical application. Let's sure. say that, that you have somebody that has really been against you personally and really tried to hurt you, right? And you have an opportunity to do good to them. And you contact them and say, hey, I discovered this. If you fix this, it'll save you thousands of dollars a month. And they're like, well, I can't, you did that for me. Yeah, I can't, okay, listen, well, what can I pay? It's like, nothing, man. Why? Because you just did it out of love. You just did it right. to, to do good as a Christian. But to say, well, you can't make money off of other people as long as it's legitimate, honest, fair, of course you can. It's just uh -huh. doing good, good business. So, and how did Abraham get the rest of his wealth? Obviously, he traded, he sold, he had flocks, he did whatever he did. It's not just that God rained down the money from heaven on him, right? But this was an yes. ethic. Hey, I did a righteous thing to rescue a, a cousin here, and nobody's going to pay me for that. And no one's going to be able to say, well, I, I, paid a, I helped Abraham get rich. No, no. To him, that was like a gift. Work hard, fine. But to him, that was like a gift. That, that's how I'd apply it. All right. You had one more question, right? Yeah, exactly. By the way, thank you. That really, that really clarifies it. So I, I appreciate that answer. Sure. Um, also, uh, another question I have, this one's more on a practical level. And I, I wanted to hear from somebody who has, you know, over 40 years of ministry experience like yourself, you know, on this matter. Um, so I, I do happen to be in ministry, and um, let's just say, example, you know, you feel the Lord's calling you perhaps to move into a different aspect of ministry, example, uh, let's say, you know, someone's been pastoring uh, for a certain number of years, and they feel like maybe it's time to, you know, maybe move on or to, you know, maybe go into evangelism, something like that. Um when it comes to making a big move in ministry, um, how would you suggest going about it to make sure you heard right from the Lord um, and also to go about it the proper way? Right. So there are different levels of this, meaning if you, you just had a sense, you had an inkling, you just, boy, I, I, don't, I, I don't have the same grace to be doing what I was doing before, and I, I, feel, I feel this prompting. Well, that you keep praying about it. You, you lean into the light that you have, and you ask the Lord for greater clarity. Uh, then you, you, you might share it with your spouse or other leaders and say, hey, pray with me. I, I, I don't know what to make of this. I have this sense. And others may say, hey, you know, the Lord showed me six months ago you're going to be transitioning. I've just been waiting for you to come to me. You may start to get confirmation like that. Another thing is to start to give yourself to doing some of the other things. It's like, okay, I'm, I'm still pastoring. But I've got this evangelistic thing. I'm going to just start doing outreaches or grab a few people in the church. Hey, let's do, let's do this outreach here. And maybe you really feel God's grace in it. You feel, wow, this is, this is him. So the more you do that, walking in the light that you have, as, as you get closer and closer to the light, it gets brighter and brighter.
right? Other times it's just yes. our, our, our emotion. We get worn out. It's seasonal, going through a hard time. The grass always looks green on the other side. We're humans. That can happen. That being said, mm-hmm. I've been spoken to by God at different times over the years with intensity and with dramatic clarity. And I knew it was the Lord. And when I knew it, I shared it with others. God spoke this to me. I have to act on it. Now, if I was in leadership at that time and with ministry, then, of course, I'd share it with others and say, I'm convinced God spoke this to me, and I'm sharing it with you. If everyone says that's not God, well, now let's, okay, let's all pray. I really believe it is. Let's all pray. I may ultimately have to do what I believe God spoke to me to do, even if I was warned, I, I listen to the warnings, I take them seriously, but ultimately I have to give account to God, or it could be that that corporate wisdom gets me to slow down. Maybe my timing is off. Uh, may, maybe it's the Lord, but I haven't processed it properly. Uh, but that's why I say it can be at different levels. So those, those are some of the, the practical thoughts. May the Lord guide you, my brother. I, I did a, a teaching series, oh, I don't know, 10, 20 hours of teaching on how to be led by the Spirit. It's an older series, but you might find it practical. It's, it's on our website, sdrbrown.org, in the store with audio resources. Hey, thank you for the call. 866-348-7884. Uh, let's go to Michael in Fort Worth, Texas. If you could turn that radio down there, we'd be great. Okay, are you there? Yes, sir. Yes, go ahead. Yes, sir. Um, sir, um, I have been like losing faith. Um, I am a, um, I am a, 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 a Gentile. And I was reading it in Isaiah. It says uh, we will be servants and be inmates, basically, in the, you know, the last last days. No, no, no. That, yeah, just to clarify, Michael, that's that's not talking about believers in Jesus. That's talking about the people of the nations that will enter the future kingdom once Jesus has returned on the earth, and, and yeah. they, will, they will support and serve the nation of Israel. It's not saying that Gentile Christians will serve Jewish people in the world to come. It's not saying that. You, uh, if, okay. you're, if you're a follower of Jesus, you serve Jesus, and I serve Jesus, and, and we serve one another in love as fellow believers. But Gentiles don't serve Jews in the church. Uh, we we serve the Lord together. Oh, okay. Cause I was getting scared. I was like, yeah, this is the last days. They would cling uh, to them. They would be be um, possessed, and they would be service inmates. I was like, wow. That's, yeah, that doesn't sound really good. Uh, no, good so here, 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 Michael, get saved today so that you can serve the Jews. No, that's... That's not it. But see, at the end of the age, uh, when the Lord returns and establishes his kingdom on the earth, it says in Zechariah 14 that the survivors of the nations that attack Jerusalem will come up to worship the God of Israel. And that's when Israel will be revered and honored and respected by those people. But we will already be in our resurrected bodies with Jesus forever, Jew and Gentile, uh, that our believers will be resurrected. So... Fear not. We are, we are the Lord's servants, and we serve him with joy, whether by life or by death. And we give ourselves okay. to serve a dying and hurting world. But no, that, it's a legitimate question. You know, you read that verse like, what? But again, that's, I was like, 
Yeah. Okay. I was like, what? No, no. Why? Why am I being like a? Who could be a servant and handmaid? Made like why? Yeah, like why? Like what did I do? <laughs> like, right. Yeah, you know. All right, so okay. ho- hopefully we, we clarified it for you. And, and, and listen, whatever, well, I got a break coming up, so let me just say this quick. Um, if you have a question that comes up, don't ever let that mess with your overall faith in God. Don't let that mess with your relationship with God. It's like, okay, Lord, I don't understand that, but I know you're good. Always come back to that. I know you're good. I know you're full of love. I know what you do is right. I know you're perfectly just. So I don't understand how this works out here, but I trust you because I know you. All right. Hey, may the Lord bless you, Michael. Thank you for your question. The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get on the Line of Fire by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Well, I, I am really encouraged by some of the responses we are getting from the early readers of the political seduction of the church. Last chance if you want to order a numbered, signed copy from the first printing Go to our website, askdrbrown.org, askdrbrown.org. Of course, you can always order from our website or Amazon or wherever else you're getting books, christianbook.com, etc. But just wanted to remind you, if you want it from the first printing, numbered, signed, now's your time to order, askdrbrown.org. Uh, the book officially releases on Tuesday of next week, and we'll have a lot to say that I believe will really hit home. I'm, I'm not out to, to win people's favor. I'm out to honor the Lord and maintain his favor. So I'm, I'm going to be brutally honest about things. But I believe as I do that you'll say, yes, that's what I That's how I feel. I believe that. All right. 866-34-TRUTH. Any question of any kind that you want to ask, as long as it's appropriate for Christian radio. Uh, we go back to Texas. Sims, welcome to the line of fire. Good afternoon, Dr. Brown. Thank you again for your ministry. I have a question. First uh, Corinthians chapter 5, uh, specifically verses 3 through 5, dealing with the issue of uh, the man with the incestuous relationship with his stepmother. Mm-hmm. Um, in my, I was part of my daily reading that I was reading it, and specifically it says in verses 3 through 4 from the NIV, for my part, even though I'm not I am not physically present. I am with you in spirit. And as one who is present with you in this way, I've already passed judgment in the name of the Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. Now, my my thought process on this is that Paul is, in essence, saying that, listen, I've already, it sounds as if he's saying I've already decided what needs to be done with this individual, um, and this is all what you all need to do and put him out. And I would presume put the stepmother out as well, but I wanted to get your thoughts on it. Yeah, interestingly, it doesn't mention the stepmother. Perhaps she didn't claim to be a Christian. But certainly this man did, and he was unrepentant, and the church somehow was boasting about their liberty. So let me first back up and say it's fascinating that in the second chapter, Paul says the spiritual man makes judgments about all things. 
In the fourth chapter, Paul says, I don't even judge myself and judge nothing before the appointed time. In the fifth chapter, he says, judge the wicked person in your midst. In the sixth chapter, he says, one day you'll judge angels, so you should be able to judge disputes here. And then the 11th chapter, he says, we should judge ourselves. So each time, he's using the same Greek words, basically. Each one has a contextual meaning, which is really, really interesting. So here, when he's passing judgment, he means, I know the facts, and because this person is unrepentant, then this is what must be done. So as, as the apostolic leader and the father, the spiritual father of this congregation, I'm telling you this needs to be done, and I'm asking you to carry it out. And you, you really blew it here by boasting about this. Hey, look at the liberty that we have. So, yeah, this person was to be disfellowshipped and given over to Satan with the hope that as a result of that, the misery that he would suffer would lead, lead him to repentance so that his spirit would be saved even if his body was destroyed. But yes, he has passed judgment, not made a superficial judgment, but said, here, just like a judge, here are the facts, here's my judgment, now carry it out. And that's what he was asking them to do. Okay, uh, sounds good. I, it's one of those passages where you just sort of read and you're like, huh, okay. Uh, but today I decided to stop and think about it. Um, and I was wondering about it, and so I figured, I hey, I'll call and ask Dr. Brown. What he yeah, said. you did. You called you call the right place. And it's, it's very straightforward. Very intense. Very intense. But remember what Paul says. He says, I've, I've told you not, not to fellowship, have meals with, have fellowship with someone who claims to be a believer, right? Claims to be a brother in the Greek, which means a brother or sister in the Lord. And yet is living in this unrepentant lifestyle. I'm not saying somebody messed up, fell, and sorry about it. No, someone living in an unrepentant lifestyle. You cut them off. You disfellowship them. Why? With the hope of bringing them to repentance and so as not to let the leaven of that spread to the others. He says, but I'm not talking about the people of the world. I'm not talking about adulterers and fornicators and drunkards in the world. He said, oh, you have to leave the world. But that's something where we separate from a person who's been warned, who's been called to repentance, living in open rebellious sin and claims to be a believer. If they refuse to repent, then the righteous thing is to disfellowship them. All right. 866 Three, four, truth. Let's go to Joshua in Stillwater, Pennsylvania. Welcome to the line of fire. Thank you, sir, for taking my call. Yes, go ahead. Thank you. Sir, my, my question is about oneness Pentecostals. I myself um, have been brought up, and I still believe in the Trinity. Um, I have ran into a group of people, and they're very nice people, um, but I just have questions in my head why they baptize in Jesus' name only when Matthew twenty-eight nineteen states to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy and the Holy Spirit. And at the core of their doctrine um, is is what they believe possibly a damnable offense. That that is my question, sir. Right. Thanks, and thanks for the seriousness with which you ask it. First, the reason yes, and that... Yeah, go ahead. No, but I, ju I just want to say I'm, I'm humbly seeking the truth, that's all. Yes, but, yes. Now, I could hear that in your tone of voice. So, uh, number one, because they see reference in the book of Acts to baptizing in Jesus' name, uh, it, the Greek is different formula, baptizing into Jesus or in the name of Jesus or upon the name of Jesus. 
So it can have reference to different aspects of things because they see that and they have this doctrine. They read Matthew 28 in a strange way, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. They say, see, it says the name of, not the names of. So what is the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit? The name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit is Jesus. Well, that we know is not the case. We know that Jesus is not the name of the Father and that Jesus is not the name of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the name of the Son who proceeds from the Father and who sends the Spirit. So that breaks down. And grammatically, it's clear what it's saying in the name of. It means in this formula, using these words, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But that's how they get that wrong. And then they misunderstand the evidence in the book of Acts, which would either mean they were baptized into the name of Jesus, which means uh, into his power, into his body, or they were baptized while calling on the name of Jesus, etc. And I would have no problem if someone said, we baptize you in the name of the Father, and Jesus Christ, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's how actually my pastor baptized me because he said, hey, I, I want to make sure I include everything. That, that was his custom. But I baptized people for years just as Jesus commands in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So they're quite mistaken there. And just when you read through Joshua, say John 14, 15, and 16, just take time and read those clearly. This is not that Jesus is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It is clear that when he's baptized, the, the Father speaks from heaven, and the Holy Spirit comes symbolically in the form of a dove. So you get the Father in heaven, you've got the Son on the earth, you've got the Spirit as a dove. It's not three different manifestations of the same person, etc. And I know one of people try to explain these. But when you read it, it's clear that the Father's distinct from the Son, the Son from the Father, and the Son from the Spirit, the Spirit from the Father, and yet one God only. Are the beliefs damnable? On the one hand, 1 John 2 says if you have the Son, you have the Father also. So even if they're wrong about their doctrines, if they believe that Jesus is eternal God, that he died for our sins, that there's salvation found in him alone, then they could potentially be saved. However, according to my friend Dr. James White, who was mentioned earlier, if you really look at their doctrine carefully, there is actually a denial of the Son as eternal deity, and therefore it is damnable. So my own experience, Joshua, has been that I have met oneness people, according to everything I could see, believed fundamentals of the gospel, and were fellow believers, but in error. Dr. White would say that could only be because they didn't rightly understand their doctrine. If they did, then they would not be true believers with some error. So that is the answer as best I could give it. I have met some that when I quiz them and ask them and challenge them, that yes, 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 yes to this, all right, well, then those are the things fundamental for salvation. However, Dr. White would say probe more deeply and see what the church officially teaches, and if they line up with that, then what they're holding to would be damnable. Thank you, sir, for the call, and be secure in your beliefs. You're on the right track here in terms of believing in God's triunity. All right, let us go to Cade. In Louisiana, welcome to the Line of Fire. Hey, thank you. I'm very blessed by your ministry, and I'll go ahead and give my question. So my question is referring to Hebrews 6. Does it teach that someone can leave the faith, willfully choose to walk away, and do verses 4 through 6 
teaching, if someone makes that decision, it's impossible for them to come back to the faith. Got it. Yes. Yeah, so the standard question of Hebrews 6, 4, 3, 6, which many of us have asked over the years. Number one, yes, Hebrews 6 does countenance that possibility that someone could be a true believer and turn away from the faith. Uh, you'll find that in Hebrews 2. You'll find that in Hebrews 3. You'll find that in Hebrews 4. You'll find that in Hebrews 10. You'll find that in Hebrews 12. Warnings to fellow believers, warnings to brothers and sisters about departing from the faith. You can't depart from the faith unless you're in the faith. So that's clearly taught in Hebrews as well as other passages in the New Testament, Second Peter 2 being a very clear passage among others. So absolutely is possible. However, the entire Bible always invites backsliders back continually, 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 as do other passages in the New Testament like Luke 15 or the end of Jacob, James, the fifth chapter, and other passages. So, how do we reconcile that with Hebrews 6, 4 through 6, which seems to indicate that if you turn away, you can't come back. My understanding, and you'll see it reflected in the rendering in the ISV, is that it's speaking to Jewish people who were in the faith and now have turned away, but they've gone back to their traditions. They've gone back to temple Judaism, and as long as they're doing that, they're crucifying the Son of God afresh, and there is no salvation found there. The sacrifices will not atone for sin. They are rejecting the only forgiveness, and as long as they are in that state, there, there is no forgiveness, there is no restoration. Because they're thinking, hey, I'm fine with God anyway. I'm following our traditions and customs and law. And he's saying, no, if you've rejected the once-for-all sacrifice for sins, there is no more sacrifice. So going back to Judaism will not save you. As long as you're in that state, there is no forgiveness. There, there is no mercy. Turn away from that, come back to the Messiah, and you absolutely can be forgiven. I'll, I'll come back with one more point on the other side of the break. It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get on The Line of Fire by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Yeah, so I'm just going to read this cage from the ISV. So BibleGateway.com and just type it in with ISV. For it is impossible to keep on restoring to repentance time and again. People who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have become partners with the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of God's word and the powers of the coming age and have fallen away as long as they continue to crucify the Son of God to their own detriment by exposing him to public ridicule. So as long as they're in that state, they can't be renewed. You say, well, wouldn't that be obvious? Well, not if they're going back to Judaism. They think, well, what I'm doing is fine and I'm in right relationship with God. They say, no, it, actually quite the contrary. All right, it, it is a controversial passage. That's the best uh, for me uh, in terms of understanding it. All right, I, I want to jump ahead to skip someone ahead on the line because it's a caller from Zambia. Uh, we don't get calls from Zambia every day. Hey, Larry, uh, just pushed you ahead because you're calling from Hello, Zambia. Sir. Welcome to the line of fire. Hello, sir. Uh, good evening, Dr. Brown. It's so great to, uh, to speak to you and to, to be on the show. Great. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Just a quick question for you. I do a lot of witnessing to Jehovah's Witnesses, and uh, I'm, I'm aware of kind of uh, scriptures uh, from Isaiah talking about the fact that God would uh, not share his glory with anyone else. 
Um, now, I've just many times read through the New Testament and come across uh, scriptures like, for example, Romans chapter 9, verse 23, which says, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Uh, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17, which says, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. There's some scriptures in the New Testament which tend to lend this thought that we might be sharing glory with God or something like that. Yeah. Uh, I wonder if you could explain that so that I can, I can defend that. Yes, absolutely. First, it is a very powerful argument to use for the deity of Jesus that God will not share his glory with any man, with any other being, especially an alleged deity or angel or something like that, that all worship is directed to him alone. And yet the New Testament proclaims Jesus as Lord as highly exalted, prayer is directed to him, worship is directed to him. And you think, as the gospel is going to, to Gentile Christians who have been idol worshipers, right? You're now going to proclaim this one Lord. Miracles are worked in his name. He rose from the dead. He sits at the right hand of the Father. Prayer and worship can be directed. Of course, they're going to think he's a deity. There's no possible way that they could think anything else. So what about these other verses? Sharing in glory here means in the blessing of God's splendor, not glory in terms of when he says, I won't share my glory with anyone. He means no one else is going to be worshipped as God. No one else is going to get credit as God. No one else can be mistaken for God. Only me. When I do it, nobody else can take the praise because I did it and I did it alone. And I did it in a way that everyone knows it's me. Now I want to share the blessings of my presence, of my splendor, with you forever and ever as my people. So that's all it's talking about, and, and two clearly distinct categories. Mm -hmm. I get you, I get you. That's really great, really succinct and uh, really helpful. Thank you so much, Dr. Brown. Yeah, and you know, Larry, it's funny, I was, this past weekend, just had read through Hebrews afresh and read through First Corinthians afresh, and just in 1 Corinthians 1, we talk about the Lord Jesus, the thing just exploded at me again. There's no possible way that, that he could think that the, the people he was writing to would not be worshiping Jesus as God. He's called Lord. You pray to him even so, you know, Maranatha, even so, come Lord and all of this. In any case, yeah, you, you got a clear head on this, obviously, in terms of your question and your response to my answer. God bless you, my brother. All right, we go to Grado in Minnesota. Thank you for holding and welcome to the line of fire. Dr. Brown, so there's a Jehovah's Witness here, <laughs> and look, my, my main objection to the divinity of Christ is that he's begotten by the Father, so that means he has a beginning, and Jesus always talks about his Father like someone greater than him, and so how can we believe that Jesus is God when he has a beginning? Yeah, so first, he doesn't have a beginning. He says in, in, Gen in John eight fifty eight. Before Abraham was, I am. He doesn't say I was. He says, before Abraham was, I am. The Jehovah's Witness translation, the world translation, completely butchered that years ago and even created Greek grammar that doesn't exist. But he has no beginning. He says, before Abraham was, I am. That's, that's the first thing. Uh, the second thing is, Thomas falls down at his, uh, before him and worships him and says, my Lord and my God. And Jesus says, you finally get it. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't rebuke him for calling him my Lord and my God. He says, you, you finally got it. 
and then in, in John 1, in the beginning was the Word. So as far back as you go, he was, and he was with God. When it says begotten of the Father, that just means proceeding forth from the Father. It, it, it doesn't say created by the Father, made by the Father. It doesn't talk about the time that there was a time before him. But he speaks of himself in eternal uh, ways. Uh, in, in Isaiah 9, he's called El Gibor, uh, the mighty God, as well as Father forever, Aviad. So those are things spoken of him. And, and here, let me, uh, let me read this to you, okay, from, from Hebrews chapter 1. All right? So Hebrews chapter 1, if you're a Jehovah's Witness, then you should agree with what the Bible says. Look at this. This is, this is to Jesus. Of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So he's called God. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. And then your God has anointed you. So the Father anoints the Son, but they're both called God. Now look at this. Quoting from Psalm 102. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. And the heavens are the work of your hands. That's God who did that. That's God who did that. Only God. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you'll roll them up like a garment. They'll be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. That's God he's speaking of, my brother. So begotten simply means proceeding forth from, right? And, and this is some of the mystery of God's eternal nature. But he is not created. He says of himself before Abraham was, I am using the divine title about himself. I am the eternal one. And when Thomas worships him and says, my Lord and my God, Jesus doesn't rebuke him. He commends him. You finally believe. You finally get it. So I, I yeah. say he's deity because the word is so, so clear that he is. Yeah, you know, this is a very confusing subject for me about, yeah, I think everything points out to the divinity of Jesus. But if he's begotten by the Father, does that doesn't make him inferior to him? How no. can we say that they're both equal? Because it says in John 5 that it's the Father's will that people honor the Son just as they honor the Father. That's what, that's what Jesus says, that we honor the Son just as we honor the Father. Here, here's, what, here's what I want to encourage you to do, Grado, okay? Because you seem, you seem sincere in asking your question. When Jesus was on earth, he, he, taking on flesh and blood, of course, he says the Father is greater than I, right? And, and certainly, uh, his purpose is to draw attention to the Father. We understand that. We, we believe that. But here's what I want to encourage you to do. I want to encourage you to get alone, just with the Lord, right? And, and get on your knees and say, God, I want to follow you and your truth. I don't want to be deceived. I don't want to be deceived by these Christians. I don't want to be deceived by these Jehovah's Witnesses. I don't want to be deceived by anybody. I just want to follow you and your word. And then read through Revelation chapter 5. Just do it alone. Don't pull out any Jehovah's Witness Bible helps. Don't pull out any Christian commentaries. I just want to encourage you to read Revelation 5 alone, where it says this. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne, and the living creatures, and the elders, and the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea 
and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. I can say those words with a full heart because Jesus, as God, deserves them. I don't know how you could say them with a full heart as a Jehovah's Witness without thinking that you have two different gods now. So I just encourage you to do that, all right? Maybe the Lord set things up today on the radio to be a blessing to you with Larry from Zambia calling in and, and me bumping him up to get to his call. Maybe the Lord set this up, but above all, you, God, and the Bible. Work it out, and I trust God will lead you. Is that fair? You, God, and the Bible, and ask him to help you follow the truth wherever it leads, all right? Okay, thank you so much. Um, well, um, hope he guides me to him. All right, and, and listen, if, if you need to follow up, write to our ministry. My Jewish ministry assistant himself was a former Jehovah's Witness, so he knows it. He was in it as a young man. He's a brilliant Old Testament scholar now, fluent in Russian, Hebrew, and English. And he'd be glad to help you if you have further questions. So you can write in to us, Grado, at AskDrBrown, A-S-K-D-R-Brown.org. Hey, sorry I couldn't get to other calls, but let's pray for our friend Grado here, that God will really bring him into the truth, liberate him from false doctrine. Grado, the great thing is, Jehovah's Witness teaching cannot bring you into a living relationship, an intimate relationship with God. But the true gospel can, and you're about to make a discovery that'll change your life. May God give you the grace to trust, to believe, to receive, and to be changed. All right, friends, have an awesome weekend. Back with you on Labor Day, and then September 6th, the release of my new book, The Political Seduction of the Church. God bless. Another program powered by the Truth Network.